Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode features strong language and discussion of sexuality that some people may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. Tuesday, August 22nd, 1972. 27-year-old John Wadowitz paced in front of the Brooklyn Bank's floor-to-ceiling windows, trying to figure out his next move. He peeked out through the closed curtains. Everywhere he looked, a cop stared back at him. This was supposed to be an in-and-out job. Now they were screwed. His partner in the robbery, 18-year-old Sal Natarale, was stationed in the middle of the room. His shotgun trained on their hostages. Six bank tellers, the branch manager, the assistant manager, and the security guard. A few of the women held hands and whispered prayers. Sal was sticky with sweat, both from the stress and from the summer heat. He was starting to panic. The thought of going back to jail terrified him. John reassured him no one was getting locked up. He was going to figure a way out of this, a way back to his wife. The phone on the bank manager's desk rang for the dozenth time. John snapped at the manager, 43-year-old Robert Barrett, to answer it. Barrett looked from John to Sal to the shotgun pointed in his direction. He scurried to the desk and picked up the receiver, then almost immediately turned back to John. It's the police. They want to talk to you. John scratched his temple with the barrel of his pistol, considering, then eventually took the phone. The police wanted to know his list of demands. John answered, I want you to deliver my wife here from Kings County Hospital. His name is Ernest Aaron. It's a guy. I'm gay. This is Hostage, a ParCast original. Every week, we tell the stories behind the most captivating hostage situations and the people inside them. We'll also cover the psychological tactics used in kidnapping situations and what the human brain does when held captive. I'm Irma Blanco. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Hostage and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Hostage for free on Spotify, just open the app and type hostage in the search bar.
At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help. This is our second of three episodes on 27-year-old John Wadowitz and the hostages he took. On August 22, 1972, John tried to rob a bank in Brooklyn, New York, but before he could get away with the cash, police arrived and a standoff ensued. Last week, we covered John's upbringing and his involvement in the burgeoning gay rights movement in New York's Greenwich Village. When his first marriage ended in 1969, John came out as gay. In December of 1971, he married Liz Eden, a transgender woman born as Ernest Aaron. But soon after their nuptials, John realized that Liz was unhappy and desperately wanted gender confirmation surgery. After Liz was hospitalized for a suicide attempt on August 20th, 1972, John decided to take drastic action. To pay for the surgery and save Liz's life, he robbed a bank with his friend Sal Naturale. Unfortunately, the police were tipped off almost immediately. In today's episode, we'll detail the hostage standoff between John and the police. The ordeal lasted almost 14 hours, drew neighborhood crowds in the thousands, and was broadcast live on television. In our final episode next week, we'll follow John's desperate gambit to escape punishment, the resulting fallout, and how his story got the Hollywood treatment. John Wadowitz and Sal Naturale entered a Chase Manhattan bank at Avenue P and East 3rd Street right before closing time on August 22nd, around 2.50 p.m. Brandishing their guns, they rounded up the nine bank employees and collected the loot, about $38,000 in cash and $175,000 in traveler's checks. It was more than enough to give Liz her surgery, pay Sal for his help, and provide for their life on the run in Europe. But by the time John and Sal were ready to make off with their score, a few minutes after three o'clock, the police had surrounded the building. Now trapped, they started to panic. John rushed to the giant windows at the front of the bank and hastily closed all the floor-to-ceiling curtains. He reassured Sal they were still going to get out of here. The police would eventually make some kind of deal with them for the hostages. He peeked out between the long curtains. A crowd was gathering outside. In addition to the police officers, hundreds of locals from the neighborhood were already gathered on the sidewalk, drawn by the commotion of the sirens and riot gear. A few of them munched on popcorn and chips. Happy spectators. John set down his gun and stepped out the front door of the bank. According to Frank Caradron and Allison Berg's documentary on John, a police officer yelled at him through a bullhorn. He called them a slur and threatened, we're coming in there and we're going to get you. In most hostage situations, a crisis negotiator's number one goal is a peaceful resolution. As hostage negotiation expert, Dr. Harvey Schlossberg explained, A person resorts to hostage-taking out of a crisis, 
We use empathy, active listening, and rapport building to get them to a place where they are more rational. But in this case, the police were antagonizing John, threatening him. He fired back. You call me that one more time, I'll kick your ass. Why don't you put down that gun and come over here and call me that? Because I'll mess you up. Come on, put down the gun and come on over. You see me with a gun? I ain't got no weapon. Come on over. Let's go. The officer dropped the bullhorn but held his position several yards away. The crowd laughed and cheered for John. He flipped the officers off and then stalked back into the bank. It was very lucky for both the police and the hostages that the neighborhood had gathered to watch. A native Brooklynite, John automatically had their loyalty. They validated his cause, seeing him as one of their own when the police failed to. He said the interaction made him realize, I'm the man. And as long as John had everyone's attention, he was going to use it. The plan was still the same, get Liz and get to Europe. But Sal was unconvinced. To him, John needed to forget about Liz and focus on making it out of here alive. He was no good to her dead. Well, that angered John. He stalked across the room until his nose was inches from Sal's and reminded him that this only mattered because of Liz, to save her. If he had to die so she could live, so be it. Sal puffed up his chest. He wasn't dying for some messed up nut job in a dress. John took another step forward and puffed out his chest. You talking about my wife? Sal challenged, so what if I am? Just as it looked like the robbers might turn on each other, one of the bank tellers, Shirley Ball, interrupted. Her voice taut. She confided. She really needed to use the bathroom. John shook his head and took a few steps back from Sal, breaking the tension. He'd take Shirley to the bathroom. Leading with his pistol, John opened the door to the women's restroom and called out. If anyone was hiding in here, he was going to blow them away. Then he checked the stalls, one by one, kicking open the doors with his foot, his gun at the ready. When he was satisfied there wasn't anyone waiting to ambush him, he motioned for Shirley to go in and do her business. She hesitated, asking for some privacy. John muttered, but obliged, stepping into the hall. Meanwhile, FBI agent Richard Baker got a call in his Manhattan office, alerting him to the hostage situation in Brooklyn. It was Baker's last week in New York. He'd been promoted and was heading off to join the big boys in D.C. He had to rifle through a half-packed box for a pen and paper to jot down the details of the robbery gone wrong. Baker hung up the phone and cursed his luck. 72 hours left at this desk, and a hostage situation landed in his lap. He was supposed to meet his wife for dinner in a few hours. They'd made reservations at his favorite place, wanting to get one last meal there before they left the city. Now they'd have to reschedule. He picked up the phone to call his wife, but stopped halfway through dialing. He didn't need to cancel just yet. He didn't even know John's demands. In the bank, John allowed each of his hostages to make calls to their families, to let them know what was going on and reassure them that they were okay. When Shirley Ball called her husband, Harry, he stayed calm. 
He agreed that the police would keep her safe. After they hung up, he quietly packed up his desk, slipped out of the office without saying a word, and immediately took the subway to Brooklyn and joined the crowd outside the bank. Reporters and cranksters kept calling the bank as well. The journalist trying to get a scoop and the jokers to try to get their 15 minutes in the action. John spoke candidly with all of them, answering the journalist's questions and telling the pranksters to get a life. True to his machismo style, John bragged to one reporter that if the cops didn't want to negotiate with him, he would let the police draw hostages' names out of a hat and that he would shoot the persons whose name had been selected and send out the body. On everyone's minds, the reporters, the police, the spectators, were John's now public demands. He was doing this all for his wife, Liz Eden. She'd attempted suicide a few days before, after he'd failed to raise the money for her gender confirmation surgery and was now hospitalized. John wanted the police to bring her to the bank, then take them to JFK Airport and put them on a plane to Denmark so that Liz could see a doctor there for her surgery. Otherwise, he was going to shoot everyone in the bank. The idea that John was robbing the bank for Liz's surgery, which many of them had never heard of before, was shocking to all parties. Talking heads chewed over the details again and again as they covered the standoff in a live broadcast. They literally couldn't understand it. Jeremiah Newton, a friend of Liz Eden, said of the public reaction, it was a big explosion in people's eyes. I mean, it was a big shocker. It was like gay liberation right down your throat. A little after six o'clock, the phone rang again. It was the police. Liz Eden was on her way to Brooklyn. She'd be there in less than 20 minutes. FBI agent Richard Baker stood in the barbershop across the street from the bank, now Command Central. He'd had to cancel his dinner plans, after all. He listened to an officer's side of a phone call with John delivering the news about Liz. Baker had worked with the administration at Kings County Hospital to have Liz Eden temporarily released. Baker hoped to establish a quid pro quo with John. In exchange for Liz, he wanted John to release the hostages. John agreed to release one of the nine hostages in exchange for Liz. As for the rest of the captives, he'd release them piecemeal as more of his demands were met. One when the car arrived to take them to the airport, one when the plane arrived to fly them to Europe, etc. The officer on the phone looked to Baker for guidance. One for one? Baker nodded his head. One was a good start. As detailed by Scott W. Allen in the Encyclopedia of Psychology and Law, the process of negotiation and active listening assumes that the interchange among individuals possesses rewards and costs for both factions. The goal is to maximize mutual benefits while concurrently minimizing costs. These techniques allow both law enforcement and the subjects to maintain some semblance of control while agreeing on options of mutual gain. Soon after they negotiated the terms, Liz Eden arrived in the barbershop, supported on either arm by a police officer. Baker would have assumed she'd come from the King's Cross psychiatric ward, even if no one told him so. She was wrapped in a thin, white hospital robe, her eyes wide with fear, 
and her hair standing wildly on end. But she was the key to ending the standoff peacefully. Baker told the officer to get John back on the line, tell him to release one of the hostages, and they'd bring Liz over to the bank. Then he approached the scared woman in the hospital gown, who'd unknowingly set this whole ordeal in motion. He asked, Ma'am, do you know why we've brought you here? Liz nodded her head. This was about her husband, John. Yes, Baker confirmed. John wanted to see her. Liz's eyes grew even wider, and she started to weep, shaking her head. No, please, no, don't make me go over there. He doesn't love me anymore. He wants to kill me. Coming up, Baker tries his best to meet John Wadowitz's demands. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now back to the story. Tuesday, August 22, 1972. 27-year-old John Wadowitz was three hours into a standoff with police holding nine bank employees hostage. John had been forthright with his demands. He wanted his wife, 26-year-old Liz Eden, brought to the bank. Then he wanted a car to take them to JFK Airport so they could fly to Denmark and arrange for sexual confirmation surgery for Liz. By now, over 200 cops and federal agents, 2,000 Brooklynites and two dozen reporters crowded along Avenue P and East 3rd Street, watching the drama unfold. FBI agent Richard Baker, the agent running point on the affair, was keenly aware of the spectators. He'd hoped to resolve the situation quickly and efficiently before it blew up in all of their faces on live TV. But as he stood inside the FBI's barbershop command center, he realized a quick resolution wasn't possible. Liz Eden refused to cooperate. Still in her hospital pajamas and bathrobe, her thick curls standing on end, Liz pleaded with Baker, don't make her go into the bank. If John saw her, he was going to kill her. Agent Baker tried to stress to Liz how much he needed her help. People's lives were on the line, but she kept shaking her head, bursting into tears. In her mind, her life was on the line. Liz later explained, that morning and that afternoon, both... They had given me drugs in the hospital. They asked me if I would go to John in the bank, and I told them I was afraid to. In my mind, I thought John was going to kill me. With the world watching, 
hungrily anticipating Liz Eden and John Wadowitz's reunion in front of the Chase Manhattan, Baker tried to plan his next move. Referring again to Dr. Harvey Schlossberg, many negotiators refer to the 30-minute rule. Essentially, if a hostage taker doesn't kill any of their hostages within the first 30 minutes of the crisis situation, it's likely that they won't kill any hostages at all. So far, John fit into this category. However, he also still believed that he had a chance to get what he wanted. Once John learned that Liz didn't want to fly to Denmark, didn't even want to see him, it would dramatically alter the stakes and might trigger a violent response. John could decide that without Liz, there was no point in keeping the hostages alive and start shooting everyone inside. Baker asked Liz if she would at least be willing to talk to John. Yes, she would talk to him. Baker picked up the receiver and called the bank. When John answered, Baker introduced himself as an FBI agent. He told him that he had Liz here across the street, but she was a little bit nervous with all the cops and the crowds of people. Why didn't they talk on the phone first before going over to the bank? John readily agreed to the new terms, just put Liz on the phone. But Baker didn't want to lose his chance to free a hostage. He told John that he still had to fulfill his end of the bargain, let someone go. After only a few moments, the door to the bank opened. The security guard, Calvin Jones, calmly walked out onto the sidewalk, a free man. John chose Calvin from the nine because he said his mother was on her deathbed. Calvin held up a two-fingered peace sign as two police officers escorted him to safety. His release provoked a flurried reaction from the crowd. A dozen cameras clicked to capture the moment. A few spectators hollered and cheered. Then John picked up the line again and said to Baker, Okay, you got him. Now get me Lizzie. Before Baker handed over the receiver, he instructed Liz Eden to avoid talking about when she was going to come to the bank, but try to keep him on the phone as long as possible. Baker needed as much time as he could get to figure out what he was going to do once John realized his wife didn't want to run away with him to Europe after all. But Liz wasn't really in a state of mind to ad-lib. Almost immediately, she admitted to John that she wasn't going along with his plan. She was afraid of him. John was crushed. What was she talking about? Afraid? He loved her. A growing lump in his throat choked his words. He managed to sputter, I did this for you so you could have your operation. At the sound of John's tears on the other end, Liz set down the phone, overcome. But Baker encouraged her to keep talking. Now that John knew this wasn't what Liz wanted, maybe he would be willing to surrender. Baker fed her a few lines. He asked her to tell John to come out and give himself up, to tell him that's what she really wanted, not the money or the surgery. She parroted the words, but John wasn't receptive. His fellow robber, Sal Naturale, was convinced the cops were about to storm the place any second. If John surrendered, Sal would get even more spooked. He'd kill everyone inside to avoid going to jail. Liz pushed again. She didn't care about Sal, she cared about John. 
he should just walk away and end this whole crazy day. But again, John rejected the idea. He told her, I can't come out, but I'll save all the people. Then he asked if she would at least come to the bank door so he could see her face to face one last time. She didn't have to stay. She didn't have to come to Denmark. He just wanted to give her a goodbye kiss. Now it was Liz's turn to deny him. She couldn't do that. She had to go. She hung up the phone and told Agent Baker to send her back to the hospital. Everyone inside the bank had heard John's side of the call. They watched him in silence as he paced, head down, distraught. Shirley Ball couldn't help but feel bad for her captor, who'd risked it all for love and had his heart trampled on instead. A little while later, the phone rang again. John sprang across the room to pick it up. Lizzie? It was the police. There was someone outside who wanted to see him. John rushed out the front door of the bank. Had she changed her mind? But it wasn't Liz. It was an ex-boyfriend from Greenwich Village, Pat Coppola. Looking for his own 15 minutes, Pat came down to join the circus in front of the bank when he realized John was the robber on TV. He told a few of the officers that he and John were former lovers and offered to help in any way he could. On trying to recover from the botched reunion with Liz, Agent Baker agreed to send Pat across the street instead as a show of good faith, but he instructed the police to keep one hand firmly around Pat's belt for the entire exchange. He didn't need to replace the freed security guard with a new hostage. If John was disappointed to see Pat instead of Liz, it was a fleeting discouragement. He grabbed Pat by the collar and pulled him in for a long, wet French kiss. The crowd exploded, some cheering, some booing. His confidence restored, John strutted back inside the bank. He quipped to Robert Barrett, how about that, Liz? Back in the barbershop, FBI agent Baker scrambled to regain control over the situation. The crowd and the media were infatuated with John, treating his antics like that of a modern-day Robin Hood. This little guy sticking it to corporate America on a mission fueled by love. But Baker simply saw another thief, one who may have known how to charm the spectators, but clearly was no criminal mastermind. He'd been soft on John so far. Now, it was time to take the gloves off. Now that it was clear this wouldn't come to a quick resolution, Baker decided to buckle in and draw the situation out as long as possible. Stalling for time is a commonly used strategy for negotiators. Dr. Harvey Schlossberg explained, one of the things the surge of adrenaline does is deplete your reserves of sugars. If you're under pressure like this, the stress combined with the fatigue can make you make mistakes. It could be two hours, it could be eight, but they're going to want to sleep at some point. We've had a significant number of cases where everybody falls asleep. The criminals, hostages, everyone. And the police just go in while they're dozing. Baker dispatched officers to cut the phone lines to the building. First, this ended the live play-by-play -play chats with dozens of reporters following the story. If Baker was lucky, the lack of direct access to John might even encourage some of the crowd to pack up their cameras and go home for the night. Well, secondly, without the phone, 
John would have to negotiate with Baker face to face. This would help Baker develop a much needed rapport. Baker grabbed a bullhorn, strapped on his bulletproof vest, then ventured out of the barber shop. He spoke calmly into the amplifier. John, can you hear me? He watched John furtively peek through the closed curtains, then disappear again. Baker used the bullhorn once more. Why don't you come outside and talk? Eventually, John appeared in the doorway. He was clearly agitated, in no mood to negotiate. He barked at the police officers nearest to the building, telling them to back up and give him space. When they hesitated, looking to Baker for direction, John screamed, How many times do I have to tell you guys to get out of here? Baker motioned at the officers, waving them off. Then he tried talking again, telling John that he was only trying to help. What did he want? But this only antagonized John. He'd already told them what he wanted, and Liz didn't want him. Then he stormed back inside the building. Agent Baker played his next card. He cut the power to the building. Inside the bank, the overhead lights went out. This wasn't a pressing issue. The police had set up a few tactical floodlights outside. The more dire reality was the lack of air conditioning. It was a 90-degree day. Baker hoped this might force John's hand in negotiating. Eventually, it would be so hot inside the bank, he'd come out and stand on the sidewalk just to get some air, and Baker would be ready for him. It seemed a likely outcome. In under 20 minutes, everyone inside was sweating through their clothes. John unbuttoned his shirt and discarded it, yellow pit stains showing on his white V-neck undershirt. A few of the ladies removed their hosiery, opting for comfort instead of decorum. The bank manager, Robert Barrett, allowed himself to take off his tie and undo his top two buttons. They sat there in sweaty silence until John turned on the radio, looking for any kind of distraction. He landed on a baseball game, the Mets versus the Astros, tied one and one at the bottom of the third. They listened to Willie Mays send the ball deep into center field, going back, way back, before it was caught by Cesar Cedeno, the Astros outfielder. John grumbled. He was a Yankees fan anyway. But he left the radio tuned, letting it fill the quiet, humid room. Then he went to the window and peeked through the curtains. He pointed out one of the snipers to hostage Robert Barrett. What do you think of that guy? I think he really wants me. He wants me in the worst way. Barrett chuckled. What did he mean? John clarified. Don't you think he wants to go to bed with me? The thought that John could be thinking about sleeping with someone in the middle of this crisis was too much for Barrett. He burst out laughing. When the other girls asked what was so funny, Barrett was too embarrassed to explain. But John sure wasn't. He pointed out the same sniper to them. That guy wants me. Then suddenly, Barrett had a flash of inspiration. There was an electrical control panel in the cellar. Maybe they could restart the power themselves and get the air back on, at least for a little bit, to cool them off. John scooped up his gun and motioned for Barrett to lead the way. Getting the power back would piss off the cops for sure. 
John told Sal to keep an eye on the rest of the hostages, warning the girls not to try anything funny. Sal may be a young guy, but he was still a tough guy. Then John and Barrett took off for the basement. Shirley Ball watched Sal out of the corner of her eye. She didn't trust the look of him. The assistant manager, 48-year-old Dolores Godesheim, crossed her cell for the 50th time that day, closed her eyes, and started to quietly pray. Then, someone fired. Coming up, John and Sal make a plan to escape. New year, new credit scores. Chime makes it easier to build credit by using your own money to make on-time payments with a secured Chime Credit Builder Visa credit card. Use it everywhere Visa credit cards are accepted. To apply, just open a Chime checking account with a qualifying direct deposit. There's no annual fee or credit check required when applying. Get started at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa credit card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Late payment may negatively impact your credit score. Results may vary. This episode is brought to you by Bin Verified. Help chip away at the uncertainty that comes with online dating and use binverified.com, a leading platform for online background searches and people search reports. With their powerful search tools and extensive database, you could easily gather information about potential dates, which may help you find peace of mind before taking that next step. You can never be too safe when it comes to dating. Get 20% off today to help take control of your dating game. Visit binverified.com slash podcast. Now back to the story. FBI agent Richard Baker was at an impasse in his hostage negotiations. It was almost 8 p.m. on August 22, 1972. Nearly five hours had passed since 27-year-old John Waterwitz and 18-year-old Sal Natarale had stormed the Chase Manhattan Bank at Avenue P in East 3rd Street. Baker had hoped the situation would fizzle out quickly. John demanded to see his wife. 26-year-old Liz Eden, and the police had promptly produced her. But Liz wanted no part in John's robbery scheme and had refused to see him. Now, Baker was out of bargaining chips. So he'd escalated his tactics, cutting the phone lines and the electricity, trying to sweat the thieves out. With enough time and enough pressure, these would-be Robin Hoods were bound to crack. But suddenly, a gun fired in the bank. Baker couldn't tell who was screaming more, the women being held hostage inside or the hundreds of spectators crowded on the streets. Baker ran to the door of the bank and pounded on the glass, demanding answers. What was going on in there? Was everyone okay? John appeared after a few moments, sweaty and out of breath. He apologized profusely. Everyone was fine. It was an accidental shot. John explained. He and the bank manager had gone down to the cellar to try to turn the power back on from the control panel, but it didn't work. When they came back upstairs, John realized that the cellar door was a possible entry point for the police to storm the place. To prevent an ambush, John shoved a large desk in front of the door to block the way. But it was heavy, and in the struggle of moving it, his gun smacked into the desk and fired. He'd nearly blown his own foot off. When the crowd realized that there was nothing to worry about, applause and a few cheers broke out. They were still watching a comedy, not a tragedy. Agent Baker let himself exhale, 
but kept any relief from showing on his face. Instead, he tried to capitalize on the near miss and play to John's emotions. This was a dangerous situation with real consequences. If someone got hurt, it would be John's fault. Baker knew that by now, John had spent enough time with the bank employees to see them as more than commodities. As Scott W. Allen outlined, if the hostage takers develop positive feelings toward their hostages, they are actually less likely to harm, much less kill their hostages, whom they now began to see as humans and not just objects for barter. But John wouldn't let the tables turn on him so easily. The only reason he'd gone down to the cellar in the first place was to try to get the air conditioning going again. Baker was the one who'd cut the power to sweat them out. John was trying to make his hostages more comfortable. Baker countered, if John really cared about his hostages, he'd let them go. John smirked. Yeah, and then what happens to me? Baker kept the conversation focused on the bank employees. They were just regular people going about their day. They were supposed to be home with their families, having dinner, putting their children to bed. John agreed. They were all pretty hungry. What was Baker going to do about it? He considered the request, then suggested they order some food. What would John like? Steak, prime rib, medium rare. Baker rejected it, flat out. He'd get some pizzas delivered. Take it or leave it. When the pizzas arrived a half an hour later, John made the police leave them stacked outside the front door. Still wary of an ambush, he asked Shirley Ball to go outside and retrieve them. He handed her a wad of cash, telling her to toss it onto the sidewalk as a diversion. When she bent down to pick up the boxes, Shirley tossed the bills into the air and then scurried back into the bank. The spectators laughed and cheered as $1,000 worth of bills swirled on the pavement. Police officers scrambled to collect them before the crowd could claim any. Inside, Shirley opened the pizza boxes, releasing the greasy aroma of melted cheese into the bank. The rest of her colleagues greedily crowded around to grab a slice. Shirley herself was suddenly ravenous. But John hung back. He warned Sal not to eat anything. It could be a trick. The cops might have laced the food with some kind of knockout drugs, setting them up for an ambush. And Shirley smirked as she happily munched. She didn't care if she was drugged. At least she wasn't hungry anymore. In the end, John's hunger strike proved overly paranoid. No one passed out or got sick from the pizza. Now sated, they sat in the dark bank, waiting to see what the police would do next. John mused to Robert Barrett, Now I can shoot you and they won't give me the gas chamber, but if I shoot a cop, I get it. Now I wonder, if I put a gun at your head and another gun in your hand and made you shoot the cop, would you get it? Barrett just chuckled. He was now accustomed to John's brash and twisted sense of humor. Barrett admitted, I'm supposed to hate you guys, but I've had more laughs tonight than I've had in weeks. Shirley Ball agreed with the assessment. She felt like John wasn't really trying to hurt anyone. He was just trying to help the woman he loved and it had gotten out of hand. She said, if they had been my house guests on a Saturday night, it would have been hilarious especially with John's antics, the way he hopped around all over the place. 
But as much as they were all getting along, they were all so hot, bored, and exhausted. And now, a little after 10 p.m., there still didn't seem to be any kind of resolution in sight. Then, suddenly, the police floodlights went dark. John went to the door to try to see what was happening. He waved over Agent Baker from across the street. What was going on? Baker explained that they turned off the lights to try to clear some of the spectators out of the streets. John frowned at the thought of losing his live audience. Who cared if they were out there? Let them watch. But Baker assured John that he wanted them to leave. They were clearing the street to make room for his police escort. Baker had just heard from up top. John was getting his ride to JFK if he still wanted it. He did, absolutely. John thanked Baker and shook his hand, then strutted back into the bank. He grabbed Sal around the shoulders and announced to the room they were all getting out of here. But across the street in the FBI command center, Agent Baker was in the process of planning a very different tactical mission. Under no circumstances would they allow John Wadowitz to make it onto that plane. They were under strict orders to thwart his escape by any means necessary. Thanks again for tuning into Hostage. We'll be back next Thursday with our final episode on John Wadowitz. We'll see how the FBI tried to bait and switch John's escape route, laying a deadly trap. For more information on John Wadowitz, amongst the many sources we used, we found P.F. Kluge and Thomas Moore's Life magazine article, The Boys in the Bank, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Hostage and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Hostage for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Hostage on Spotify, just open the app and type Hostage in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. In the meantime, don't take your freedom for granted. Hostage was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Joel Stein. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode is written by Abigail Cannon and stars Irma Blanco and Carter Roy.